0: Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to train leaders, develop community organising and engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. And in 2021, and it's our birthday today, happy birthday Dunstreet, uh, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks who want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com. Dot au, And we've also got a new sponsor for the podcast, uh, Socially Democratic, is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. We're very pleased to be in a partnership with Morris Blackburn Lawyers, are a great firm, and in fact they are looking for some people to come and work for them right now. So if you're passionate about working in the law and providing access to justice, Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for a paralegal to join their class action team learn from a highly successful, collaborative and skilled team in an engaging culture and a supportive environment. The role's based in Brisbane. And to apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. So be part of change and fight for fair. Apply now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And today I'm joined by the National Director for Democracy in Colour, uh, Neha Maddock. And uh, uh, Neha is going to talk to us about uh, the work that Democracy in Colour do. Uh, They focus a lot of their energies into community organising for people of colour and First Nations uh, across the country on a whole bunch of campaigns uh, around migration, uh, criminal justice... Um, and uh, stuff around the media as well. Um, and I had a great chat to, uh, to Neha today about all the work that they're doing. Could have went for a while. I had to wrap it up eventually because we had our hour. But check it out today. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon. And if you're an Apple Podcast user, please leave us a rating and a review. And for all of the most recent updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram – and LinkedIn. Let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Thursday afternoon uh, on the land of the Wurundjeri people in uh, downtown Melbourne and joining me on the line from Adelaide, and I'm going to guess that is Ghana country from Melbourne. That is Ghana I'll country, yes. Look at that. Who's been to a couple of Labor Party branch meetings in <laughs> South Australia? This guy. Um, is the Director for Democracy in Colour, Neha Maddock. Welcome to Socially Democratic.
1: Thank you, long-time listener, first-time guest. Look, look at that. <laughs> it
0: pays off, see? Um, it
1: does, it does. <laughs> uh,
0: now, I've actually we've been trying to get you on the show for a while now, so it's great <laughs> that you finally came on. And normally you'd like to do an episode where you can try and hit a sweet spot when things are popping up <clears throat> in the media and jump on topics. Yep, but yep. Democracy in Colour does a lot of good work. And uh, I feel like issues seem to happen in the media a lot when it comes to the rights of people of colour in, the, in this country. So unfortunately it's actually – there's, there's always a good time really because there's always issues. Um, there's always something, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about the work that you do and the work that um, Democracy in Colour does in the community. But before we do that, for the folks at home, I'd like to know – more about you and your journey on uh the way that led you to working for democracy and color and i know that you've been coached in public narrative by the great man marshall gans so i'm gonna i'm gonna make i'm gonna be judging your story of self here to make sure that touches no all pressure the, touches all the key points no how did how did you come to be working here what's going on you...
1: yeah so um i mean it all it all really starts at the very beginning doesn't it with these things um to me, for me, I think it really starts when uh, my parents landed at Sydney Airport from on a plane from um, well from India via Malaysia or Singapore because you can't I don't know if you can fly direct um, with me as a little bundle in in their arms on I think it was the Queen's Birthday public holiday in fact um, and we went off and like we had a little flat in Dulwich Hill which. Um, you could, we could actually afford to live on, uh, uh, on the doll. We were on the doll. We had access to Medicare. Uh, My mum went to TAFE. Uh, My dad went out and looked for work. That was often cash in hand. Um, My parents are trained in um, as engineers and as a teacher, Um, but my mum's qualifications weren't recognised. So she had to retrain and my dad um, just wasn't able to find work because people didn't want someone who didn't have Australian experience so he um I mean that didn't stop him he went out and found ways to um still work he worked as a mechanics assistant and all all sorts of stuff that he was definitely overqualified for but he did it because it brought in the cash um and he experienced a lot of racism in, in that context like he was called all sorts all sorts of like awful slurs um but he did it to put food on the table and that's, um, that's an unfortunate uh, reality uh, for many people still today. Now, the thing that really changed our lives was the fact that dad managed to get a job in the public service. Uh, he managed to get a job at Sydney Water, uh, nice, safe, stable public service job. Uh, and that meant that we could buy a house, a secondhand car, uh, move out into the suburbs um, and you know have a backyard for me to play around in. And that's all my parents wanted. I think that's what most people want, right? Um, so I grew up out in Southwest Sydney in the, in the suburbs of Macquarie Fields and Ingleburn um, where we were one of the first immigrant families on our street. Um, and that led to people knocking on our door and asking us all sorts of um, what I would consider really outrageous questions, um, like the neighbors who knocked on our door and asked us if we were Muslim on the day after 9-11. Um, or people who would ask us uh, really inappropriate questions about the customs that we celebrated. But my parents always ran with it. Um, they always saw it as an opportunity to build connection um, and to build community. And so um, they, uh, they actually put a lot of work into being friendly with our neighbours, actually. But I went to the local public schools um, and I learned a lot about class and race in that time. I learnt about the way that people in public housing were treated. I saw the way that the teachers treated those kids differently. I saw how the teachers treated the Aboriginal kids differently. Um, And I saw how the teachers treated me differently. Um, And I remember thinking even then how unfair that was. But it wasn't until It wasn't until I remember being at home, I must have been like eight or nine years old, and this red-headed woman comes on the television and she's shouting and, you know, carrying on. She's got this awful grating voice. Um, And every time she would come on the TV, my parents, they would kind of tense up and they would kind of like talk to each other in this, like, stressed way. And I couldn't really understand what they were talking about because the concepts were just beyond me. I knew that whenever she came along and then the guy with the bushy eyebrows came along, things were not good. Someone was stressed. Um, and I didn't entirely understand why. And so I asked, well, what's going on? Why, what, what, what does this mean? And my mom said, well, we might have to go back. I was like, what do you mean, we have to go? She said, well, we might have to go. Like in other countries, when people um, talk the way that she's talking, it means that you have to leave. And it just felt like everything changed for me in that moment. Like my heart just dropped out of my body because this was the only place i had ever known. Um, This was my home and the thought that this like angry person on the TV could tell me what my home was and where I could go and where I belonged just made me so mad and it made me scared. And I... Didn't know what I wanted to do about it but I knew I wanted to do something and I knew that I wouldn't let her um, or anyone else like her um, dictate that for me and so I remember the next few days seeing more and more Australian flags go up around our suburb and thinking I used to like these I used to think that this just meant that we were all proud of our home and we just liked where we lived and now they felt much more sinister and even today I see an Australian flag and I don't think that we are we are one or that we are a united nation. I think that um this person is who has this flag wants to cause division and they're making a statement. And so um yeah, that's uh, it's a it's a long journey from there on to um working at democracy in color, but the long story short is I Went to UTS. I got involved in student politics, like I'm sure many of your listeners have in their uni days, so I don't need to go into too much detail about that. Um, Went off and worked for unions and politicians and um, climate change organisations. But um, one thing I always felt in all of those spaces was that race was invisible to progressives. They didn't want to talk about it. Or even worse, somehow the more left-wing you were, the whiter your spaces became and i didn't understand why that was either and so when the opportunity to um volunteer to start up this organization came along i just jumped because i thought this is exactly what we need
0: uh two uh thank you very much for sharing that and two uh, follow-up questions uh one more a clarification of the question the redhead mm. on the television screaming and yelling i'm assuming that was pauline Hansen, not ronda sure is not ronda birchmore <laughs> uh <laughs> no. and um and uh the second one is uh, i think a lot of uh labor party listeners who have done door knocking will certainly uh recognize this is it when you knock on a door and there is an australian flag out the front of the house you're sort of like mm. Mm, this could go either way really couldn't
1: it which is ridiculous in fact, to when think about, i isn't it? used to um door knock i would um ask someone else to door knock those uh those doors especially when we were in certain electorates it really depended on where you were
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm with you on this one. I think a lot of Labor Party people broadly, or people on the left, are very sort of have similar views about the Australian flag as a symbol for mm. national identity. I don't think I think a lot of us would like to see that flag changed. Um, mm. But um, it, it, it is it's ridiculous, isn't it, when um, a national symbol that we all should have some ownership over can then become a symbol for division. Um, which
1: is yeah, it makes me so angry the way that the far right have, like across the world, taken national flags and just turned them into these fascist symbols. Mm,
0: bizarre. All right, democracy in color. Talk us about talk to us about democracy in color. What's its purpose? Um, how did it get started?
1: Yeah, so it started like many many things do as an idea in 2016. After we saw the rise of Trump, we saw. Um, I mean federal elections here um, that I think didn't go too well for any progressive, Uh, Brexit, the election of Modi, the election of uh, Bolsonaro. We just saw the far right and nationalism in particular, like a scary, toxic type of nationalism, taking hold across the world. And it's taking hold because neoliberalism is unsustainable. But, of course, if you are... Um, if, if your interests are in creating more wealth, you don't want working people to be fighting back. You want working people to be divided and fighting amongst themselves. So, of course, they turn to the age-old um, race division tactic. And so what we, I mean, the way that we kind of put it, really, is that white supremacy and capitalism are killing us. They are eroding our dignity. They're stripping us of opportunities, They're dehumanising us, they're marginalising people of colour and then the various communities within people of colour. They're excluding working people and people of colour from decision making. uh, We're being denied basic services. And for those of us particularly who have been colonised, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma. And so we believe that by building the power of communities of colour, through centering lived experience, through a really deep focus on community organizing, um, we're able to build the solutions where impacted communities can actually self-determine how they change their lives. And so we do that in a few ways, um, community organizing being a key component of it, um, but we also run trainings um, that are a bit more so, you know, you do a, the training program and then you can choose to do what you would like afterwards. Um, and then we also do sort of rapid response digital campaigning work as well.
0: When you're setting up a democracy in colour and you think about your constituency of people of colour, um, that's a, you know, that's a pretty big constituency. That's a big one, yeah. Yeah. How, talk me through the thought process in that Um Um, I'm I'm, I'm not assuming that it's exclusionary. I'm sure that everyone, any person of colour in Australia can be involved and you seek to organise and empower those people. But talk us through about who are your sort of your target communities that you are seeking to try and organise and and empower them.
1: Yeah, and that's a great question to be asking me today because we have, um, throughout team planning process today, been spending a lot of time actually talking through our constituency because the thing that we don't want to do is flatten the experience of all people of colour um, you can't. Mm. Uh, and it also just perpetuates the problems, right? That there's like white supremacy and then there's people of colour and there's First Nations people and that's it. Um, whereas it's far more complex than that. Um, and so the constituent, so our, our base, our core constituency, when it comes to like the people who are actually currently doing the work, we would say are generally quite progressive young second or third generation people of colour with a few first-generation migrants in there. Uh, but they're the sort of people, like in any uh, progressive organisation, they're the people who are kind of already on board, who are generally quite values aligned and willing to step up and do the work. Um, and then there's the people who we need to work really hard to, um, from a, from our own organising perspective, to, um, to, like, do more with. Uh, And they are people who've got the lived experience of migration. So that might be your first-generation migrant, um, people on temporary visas like international students, uh, people who are farm workers or um, other uh, temporary visa holder, worker, you know, there are so many visas out there. (laughs) Um, And it can also include people seeking asylum um, and refugees, as well as... I guess the people who we sort of, in shorthand, um, would refer to as our parents, um, the sort of people who have come as first-generation migrants, some maybe 20, 30 years ago, um, and of course the people who are coming across now as well, um, who for very many reasons may be a little bit more conservative, but not necessarily conservative in the sense of like left or right in the way that we in the West think about it, but more conservative in the sense of like, for many their economic interests are actually quite progressive and quite left wing in that sense. There might be, for many others they're quite right wing for other reasons of where they've come from or their, their own experiences with with socialism, for example. Uh, but often we find that their their immediate interests align with the left, um, but their other interests may not. Where they um, where they Adopt this idea of assimilation or adopt this idea of just put your head down and work hard and then you can make it and have this Australian dream as well. And I mean, it makes sense. Like when you've uprooted your entire life, moved somewhere else and you want and you've done that for a better life, why wouldn't you behave in that way? And so it's that's also a big part of what we're doing is figuring out, like, how do we align our interests across mm. these very varied experiences of people of color. How do we create that um, that solidarity and that sense of collective alignment? Um, we don't know what that looks like yet, but at the very least, we've figured out that that's pretty integral to winning.
0: And community organizing and the the practice of community organizing organizing plays such an important role in that in that work, right? Trying Absolutely, to find yeah. That, that shared purpose. Among such a diverse group uh, within a broader constituency um, is critical. Talk to me about the 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 types of community organizing that the that uh, democracy and color have embraced um, in recent campaigns, and mm. what are you guys looking towards in in the future?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because because we're a startup and we've only I mean really been operational for about three or four years really. Uh, before that we were just kind of a Facebook page and a couple of young people who would call each other on the phone. Um, and so often our, like for the first couple of years, our campaigns were really reactive. And it was just like, um, the leader of the Victorian Liberal Party is uh, being absolutely outrageous and saying all these awful racialized things about South, the South Sudanese community in the lead up to the Victorian state election 2018. So we're gonna fight back. and. Um, create a, a stronger than fear campaign or man that really was just mobilizing it was telling people hey this is what's going on uh come out and door knock with us come out and make phone calls let's do something about it and people in victoria were pretty pretty cheesed off um as we then saw in the election result as well people didn't buy it um and so there was a lot of energy there and then similarly around the federal election around um, the yes campaign um but what we have what we've kind of decided is that we can't keep operating that way we can't just keep mobilizing and trying to push out at these moments in this really reactive way because we're not going to actually achieve the change that we need we get these little short-term wins we get this like if you attack us we will um we will we will emerge and we will come and like you can't you can't just do that um but what we need is to prevent this from happening in the first place. We just need our dignity and humanity recognized, which sounds so simple, but unfortunately it's not the case. And so what that means is that we are choosing to invest really deeply in um, in a decentralized community organizing style in a way that um, that isn't about democracy and color. Um, which I think is, is so interesting for so many organizations to think about, right? Like it's not important for us, for, um, our people in Western Sydney to be walking around in rocks color t-shirts, but it is important for us that they are talking to us and that we are talking to them and that together we're getting one another's needs met. And so it's interesting because there's, there's so many different ways that people talk about it. They're like deep organizing community organizing, functional organizing, Um, uh, distributed organizing and it's kind of like bits and pieces of all of it right like we we use some of the I don't know I like to think of it as flavors the flavors Mm -hmm. of some of the GAN's organizing model where we you know we set norms we talk about decision making we talk about constituency Um, we have a clear strategy when it comes to theory of change and mission Um, we have team leaders and then we have a real clear sense of where people sit but then also, we want to decentralize that, um, and so we want that snowflake or those many, many, many snowflakes to grow across the country, um, and we want to we want to make sure that the decision making is in the hands of those leaders, and that they are they're coming back to us and saying this is what we need Democracy and Color to do, and we're almost just facilitating a lot of that process. And I mean, for any organizer out there. Um, it's so simple to just say well organizing is about give and take um but for many people who are not organizers and who have to deal with organizers they would like i just know you know i've worked with those people They find it so frustrating what do you mean it's about give and take why won't they just do the thing that we've all agreed is the strategy and just go out there and make it happen Mm. um but i mean we're not we're not the experts like i'm i'm a, a a spokesperson a figurehead i I'm, able, I'm lucky enough to spend my time thinking about this a lot, but um, it's the people out there uh, who are on their temporary visas who haven't had the the opportunities that I had as a young person. Um, like they don't have access to social security, they don't have access to Medicare, they don't have access to TAFE. Um, those are the people now who really need to be leading this work.
0: Um, you may not have begun that journey, but uh, I mean, I'm interested to, to get a sense of um, mm. h- how is that going so far, or if it hasn't begun, then what are your expectations as you move into 2021?
1: Yeah, so um, so much of our work is uh, finding ways to make money so that we can hire more staff. Uh, and last year, we, uh, we hired an organising director, which um, is honestly uh, the best thing I think we've we're going to do for this organization for a while. Um, And uh, she's now really got the capacity to go out into community and start talking to people. So she's already connected with um, some of the sort of key, uh, key groups out there that we know are values aligned, have lived experience. um, And most importantly, there's already some trust and relationship there. And so she goes out, into various suburbs of Melbourne where she lives um, and has community consultations. She talks to people um, face-to-face, on the phone. Um, similarly with our, um, our existing teams as well, do, like making sure that our volunteer organisers are aligned with what's going on in the community and there's like a back and forth. So for instance, she spent a couple of months uh, pulling together a, a campaign plan for our our next organizing campaign. Um, Staff have had a look at it, the key volunteers have had a look at it. um, And it was based on community consultation, but then uh, she took it back to the community and they were like, well, actually, these things need to change and I actually don't agree with this and this and this. And And so we had to go back and make those changes, fix up that alignment. Um, So it takes longer. It takes longer than your traditional campaign where you just kind of come up with a strategy, make it look pretty. You announce it, you do a launch event, you're at the door. Um, But by the time we do launch, we will already have established leaders. We will have established um, support out there in the community where the people who are affected by this uh, have heard about what's happening. They'll have some trust in us um, and ideally be ready to to hit the ground running. Um, And so while the groundwork can take a lot longer. I think it'll really pay off in the long term.
0: That's so cool. And I, I mean, I love that uh, that point you made about, you know, you've developed a strategy, you take it out to the community and they come back with feedback. I mean, you know, we have to keep on reminding mm. ourselves that strategizing is actually a verb. That means it's constantly happening.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and if you don't get buy-in from your constituency, into the strategy, and indeed, if it's even better if they can actually shape it themselves. Then, hmm. know, then they're going to do it, aren't they? They're, they're less likely exactly. to execute tactics that underpin that strategy if they haven't had any role in 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 developing it. Exactly. There's a, and
1: I, that's our long term. That's our long term goal, right? Like instead of having to go out more, um, those people are actually leading the work, and those people are developing that work themselves as part of the broader democracy and color network.
0: That's cool. I'm not quoting you here, but I'm simply quoting some um, language mm. off of your uh, website that I found was um, both courageous in saying this and honest. Um, but I um, I identify with it, and it's uh, I think you're talking about organising. It says our movements movements, so plural, are not powerful mm. enough. We rarely reach the scale of people we need to organise, and we have difficulty engaging, impacting communities, um, and we need to. St- and we struggle to build real broad-based constituencies. W- want to get your own personal thoughts on that. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, I think um, so many organisations right now, um, I think uh, the union movement, I think the climate movement, I think a range of progressive pro- progressives who campaigned really hard in the lead up to the 2019 election are in a bit of a strategy crisis right now. Um because so many of us uh, were—I mean, us included—we we drank the Kool-Aid too. Uh, we're re- we're relying on a labor on a labor government being elected, who we'd already done all the policy work with and got them over the line on everything, and we just needed them to get elected now. Um, and that didn't work, and so now everyone's kind of going, "What? What happens? What do we do?" The libs are even more powerful; they're even more entrenched now. Um, and I think that demonstrates. Um, I think it demonstrates a range of issues, one being that we, many of us, have been organising according to election cycles, um, particularly in the not-for-profit space where, um, where so much of your fundraising is just oriented around like two to three years um, and it's so hard to get philanthropists to give really long-term sustained funding. Um, this idea that elections are the way to create change as well, um, where I think um, the labor movement had a real reckoning after Your Rights at Work, um, and realizing that there was a lot of work that needed to be done after Kevin Rudd's election to hold them to account. Um, and I think, as well, there's just a lack of there's a sense that engaging with some of the some of the constituencies that are either fearful right now or so um, so disengaged. That they don't care at all about the political process that they are in the too hard basket and by just putting them in the too hard basket we're not talking to them and by not talking to them well we're just not we're not dealing with the issues by like for example um organizations that are running campaigns in the sort of like election campaigns and sort of blue green seats to try and get like progressive independence up um or um, even just like the Labour Green stouches over the inner city seats of Sydney and Melbourne. Like, I think that these are really easy ways. Um, I mean, they're important in their own ways, but I think that they're easy ways to distract ourselves from mm-hmm. actually talking to the people who are um, who are listening to people like Trump, who are listening to people like Tony Abbott and going, yeah, that guy's he's actually talking to me and we need to be talking to them.
0: It's you know you've just reminded me um, of that change in um, the way that we campaign and organise and the obs- I would even use mm. the word the obsession that uh, organisations had with electoral politics because I think yeah. sort of like you know I mean the your rights at work campaign in oh seven was very very unique and clearly very successful I was a union organiser for the TW then. Um, ...at that time, so I remember it vividly in that lab, actually. Um, And then, you know, sort of 2013, certainly from the Victorian experience... ...was the first time that the party invested in grassroots or community... ...or electoral organising, employing field organisers and whatnot... ...and that's gone through, that's evolved over the years. Fast forward then to the the 2018 Victorian state campaign or poll um, and the 2019 federal going and voting in a p- particular target seat there was about 3,000 people handing out
1: oh my various god Various okay. how of
0: votes and most of them weren't from political parties like it wasn't just get up it was it was just unbelievable and it just hit me yeah. I, I i must have been in a i must have been living in a bubble or something because i i guess yeah when you're doing the work i was doing i, I very rarely went to apart from voting, I was very really spent totally, time. Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh my, what is going on here? And the the follow-on effect of from that is even like from a polling standpoint, there's so many groups doing polling in the final week of a campaign that it, it just it's completely ridiculous and redundant doing any um, research because oh my no one no yeah. one's answering the phone because everyone no. <laughs> from six to you know six to ten, the phones are ringing off the hook from every bloody organization trying to, you know, do polling or whatever. It, uh, yeah. Electoral polling became, sorry, electoral organizing became the cool thing that um, everyone invested in, and I, it, I, I don't know why that all of a sudden happened.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like it's so much of it. Like, I think part of it is the um, the sort of Americanization of of the progressive movement. I feel like we keep trying to learn from the American left, and I think there's a lot of value to learn from them, but they have a completely different political system um and very different concepts of politics as well but i think like you know being so inspired by the obama campaign um and i think as well just the the way that the marginals were playing out here as well um like i'm not i'm not surprised but similar to you i had that experience where we were one of our, our our key seats in um 2019 election was banks which is Like something like 50% multicultural background. People live there. It was one of the most marginal seats in the country. Um, And as far as everyone was concerned, there was no reason why it shouldn't go to the Labor Party. Um, And yet on election day, I remember seeing some of the uh, Liberal posters up and they were just running that, like Bill Shorten is a liar line. And I was actually like if you weren't paying attention, these could actually work. Um, and then the moment I actually knew that Labor wasn't going to win that seat and may not win elsewhere was when I got to the to the, one of the schools um, and I saw who was handing out the Liberal Party. It was people from the local Nepalese and broadly South Asian community, people who were local business owners, Um Like, if takeaway shops had the liberal core flutes up in their doors, we actually actually could not go to a a takeaway, like a coffee shop or a kebab shop or whatever, um, that didn't have one of those core flutes up. Um, They were shouting, cheering, and hugging the liberal um, MP now, uh, Coleman, David Coleman. Um, And no one was interested in anything that. We had to say, get up. The unions, the Labor Party had to say, the Greens. Um, it was a, it was a, almost like a, like a community day. It was like a family day out. Like people were handing out with their kids for the libs. Like friends and family were like swapping over. They were sitting on their chairs having tea. Like it was. I just looked at that and went, mm, the seats gone. And that's because they actually genuinely engaged with the people who lived there, and they. Appeal to their interests. I mean, I can only speculate as to why, and I have my, um, my hunches uh, why that happened. But the key thing was that they were actually talking to people in that electorate from day dot. And we were just out there. Like we had like very shiny looking people from the Eastern suburbs, we being the progressives, had very shiny looking people from the Eastern suburbs of Sydney handing out in a uh, Western Sydney seat. And you can tell you can tell that this person's not from here. And so no one wanted to talk to them.
0: So fast forward to today, uh, and you make some really interesting points that I, I really agree with and I can get around. Um, where, What lessons has uh, have you guys learnt from that and how is that going to shape your strategy going forward in terms of engaging with migrant communities mm. in those?
1: So one thing that we're definitely doing is... Um, using elections as moments, not as uh, the build-up to and the end of a campaign. Um, So the next federal election, whenever it is, later this year, early next year, um, that'll be a moment, that'll be a peak in our campaign, certainly. Um, We'll use it as a way to prosecute our issues and get media and do actions, whatever whatever we need to do. That's strategic at the time. Um, But we won't be... um, running an intensive marginal seat campaign to try and unseat someone. Unless it is genuinely strategic, right? Like unless it's actually going to lead to the structural change that we are fighting for. But if we're just doing it for the sake of demonstrating power, can we do that in another way? Is there a way that actually appeals to um, our base? I mean, so many of, uh, when we talk about that constituency as well of ours, many of them can't actually vote. Many of them are not citizens and that's the problem. It's the problem that they they don't have the capacity to um, execute their their voice in that way. And so, why would we campaign in a, a way that is only available to citizens and that locks out so many of our potential um, of our potential constituency? Yeah. Why not find other ways to build power and to demonstrate power? And so, that might look like um, mass mobilization. It might look like nonviolent direct action. It might look like um you know other sort of peaceful um marches or, or or gatherings or whatever we can do um or it might look like little kind of tactics that target politicians or that target the media um but i don't think that for a constituency where um, a large portion of the people are unable to vote um, i just don't think that's the way that we can demonstrate our power
0: Last year was obviously a challenging year for everyone, um, but in particular um, organisations that are trying to organise and, you know, organising does require uh, moments where you can actually physically talk to someone face-to-face. Um, it definitely helps. It definitely helps. Um, how did you guys go through the, the, the COVID year? Um, um, and, and pick out a couple of the campaigns. i mean. going so anyone listening to the show right now, jump on the Democracy uh, uh, for Colour uh, website because um, there's a bunch of really good campaigns that the, the guys have been running and I know that you're starting to, you know, re strategize and work out where you want to go next. But, you know, please pick out a couple of campaigns that you found some success in, In in, uh, as Marshall would say, under conditions of uncertainty with COVID.
1: Yes. Um, oh, 2020 was quite the year for us. Um, I would say I accumulated so much flex. I'm, i'm still taking some of it um it's certainly not a year that i or anyone else i don't think would want to do again um from an organ like from a purely like clinical organizational point of view it was a year of a lot of growth for us um and a lot of good things happened in terms of organizing in terms of um you know volunteering fundraising people getting involved um that was great um and then from the from the the more negative side, um, certainly we just had this federal government who absolutely refused to acknowledge, um, and, and just give the bare basics to people who are not citizens. And that's just, it's just appalling. So what, so, uh, let's, let's kind of dial back one year to when Scott Morrison is announcing that, yes, we're in a global pandemic. We need to do something about it. Here's what's going to happen. Blah, blah, blah. JobKeeper, JobSeeker is um, is going to be rolled out. And one of the, uh, I think there was a Guardian politician asked, um, and is this only available for citizens or will non-citizens also be able to access JobKeeper and JobSeeker? And Scott Morrison immediately says, yep, that's only for citizens and permanent residents. Uh, temporary visa holders go home, which is just one of the most mm. heartless, absurd, and also just not... I think, very clever things to do in a pandemic. Like, um, even if you're a heartless person, right, like telling over one million people to just go home, one million people who are uh, picking the fruit and vegetables, packing them in warehouses, working in restaurants, who are working in hospitality, aged care, um, who are often, like, cleaning um, hospitals, who are, as we've now seen, working in hotel quarantine, people who are delivery riders, like these are the essential workers, supermarket workers, um, far more essential than those of us who sit and tap around on our computers all day. Um, and you're telling them to go home. That's just like, that makes no sense, mm. but also it's just a disgusting thing to do to people. Um, and so suddenly uh, 1 million people were left um, not knowing how they were going to pay rent, how they were going to put food on the table uh, because, Unsurprisingly, a lot of these people are paid terribly um, and are living hand to mouth. And so um, we immediately just kicked into gear and launched a bunch of rapid response campaigns. And the 2020 was the year of rapid response for us. We thought it would be the year where we finally got proactive in our campaigning um, and could really start doing some deep organizing. And instead, all we did was uh, jump up and down. Sometimes you just have to. and so we I mean, but the good thing for us was that we had established some of our structures, some of our teams so that we could bring people in. Uh, we even created new teams on the fly and just let them run and just let them do their thing. And now they're some of our best, like most proactive teams. That's um, so we had uh, sort of a, a campaign to get JobKeeper and JobSeeker to the one million people who were left out. Um, it was both run it was run on a federal level a state level and a council level uh we managed to get almost every state to agree to some level of subsidy so that people were getting some level of essential service and it's not just us this is a coalition of um groups across across the country and i think that as well those like existing relationships were so important because so we'd all just jump on zoom um have a chat make those decisions together and then go away and make it happen um we got a whole bunch of councils again based on existing relationships councils who had already agreed to um do a lot of support work with refugees and people seeking asylum the welcoming councils is what they were called with welcoming australia um again they were some of the first to sign up for council-led subsidies but the libs federally were almost impossible to shift managed to get labor party across the line as well um except uh unfortunately not as much um uh, there were some key moments where they where they could have done more, and hopefully, as we grow our power, we can make make sure that that does happen. Um, and it's all it was also the year of um, hate speech in the media being absolute, like just absolutely setting itself on fire. Like we have three key areas that we work on. They are um, hate speech in the media, criminal justice, and migration with dignity. So um, that sort of first area of things that I talked about would come under migration with dignity. Now the second area. Is um, our "haters not news" campaign, um, and it's one where we believe that fundamentally, like, ultimately, we need to target the Murdoch media as the um, the reason why we have so much hate speech, why we have so much, uh, where we have these cultural wars, where we have so much negativity in the media and disinformation. Um, and of course, that was the that was the set of newspapers who put out some of the worst. Um, the worst just scare fear-mongering out there. I mean, we call it sort of corona racism. So there was the stuff that was targeting people of Asian background um, and a lot of, like, grassroots activism popped up around that, which we um, joined. Uh, our other national director is of East Asian background and so he did a lot of work there. Um, and then the other set of work was around what media commentators were saying. So we had... Um, I mean, we've been trying to get Pauline Hudson, uh, who we all know now I have a personal vendetta with, (laughs) as does every other person of colour in this country. Um, We've been trying to get her off the Today Show for a couple of years. And like any other campaign, sometimes your moment just comes and you've just got to be ready for it. And we were ready. We had pushed out a heap of stuff on socials. We'd had this huge petition going. Um, and when she came out and said something outrageous about those people who were trapped in public housing towers, um, that was that moment where she just, she was off, she was gone and we won. Um, same with Sam Newman. It was just, he decided to get a footy show contract just around that time that Black Lives Matter was really taking off and everyone was talking about, um, race and, um, Again, it was just a, a great opportunity to get this awful man off the television and make sure that he didn't succeed in spreading more lies and hate. So while our big target was Murdoch, Channel 9 was actually the one that where we actually got our wins last year.
0: Um, it's remarkable how long, Sam, Newman managed to stay on mainstream TV over the years
1: mm.
0: when you think about it.
1: I mean, the disinformation he was spreading last year as well was just awful. So irresponsible.
0: Um, the, I'm really going to try and not do a rant on the media because I did it no, a <laughs> couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, Andrea Carson from the media and journalism department, of Trader University. Uh, but, I mean, you, the mainstream media really has to own up to their sins uh, of the past uh, when it comes to normalising Pauline Hanson. I mean, politically, mm. she was dead in the water. Like she lost she was her party got deregistered. I think she did she go to prison or they, Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did, right? Yeah. I didn't do enough research before today's episode, but I felt confident about that. Like it was the game was over. And then all of a sudden she's did she appear on like Dancing with the Stars or something like that? Yeah,
1: Channel Seven or something, put her on Dancing with the Stars. I was outright I was like, I don't know, 15 years old. And I was so angry.
0: Like, and fair <laughs> enough, too, like. You don't see, you know, in America, David Duke isn't on Dancing with the Stars for God's no. sake. You know? Like why are they normalising this racist, bigoted xenophobe on mainstream yep. TV on a Sunday night? Like it was insane. And I just didn't understand, at the time I just didn't understand how are they getting away with this? But over time they just started, started appearing on Today Show and a whole bunch of other things. And what I worry about going forward, and this is a very glass half empty kind of attitude because first of all, Mazel tov, and congratulations on, you know, winning on that one. That was great. Thank you. But uh, I just worry that the the networks will forgive and forget, and then maybe three or four mm. years later she'll be back on again. I'm like, oh, really? Are we doing this again?
1: No, for sure. I mean, the reason that they bring her on, I mean, we we talked about this a lot during the campaign. She's she was on the Today Show. She had a paid regular spot, by the way, which you know she donated her pay to charity. But still, um, I can't imagine she was donating it to a <laughs> charity that. Yeah, I
0: was gonna say what charity?
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of charitable organisations out there. Um, Proud boys. But she was there because she was saying quote-unquote controversial things and they were just outrageous lies, just lies and racism and homophobia and just awful, awful stuff. But she was there for the ratings. Yep. I know. And And the advertising
0: dollars. Yeah, exactly. And so those networks need to put their hand up and go, all right, that's on us, you know. Yeah. That's on us. It's just like during the, um, I mean, that there is power in media. Obviously, that we know that. I know it Sounds like an idiot saying that, but during the the second lockdown in Victoria, when all those protests were happening, um, I think ironically at the Shrine of Remembrance, um, where all this, this sort of this coalition of right wing nut jobs, QAnons, oh, anti vaxxers yeah. and I don't know what else were getting together. Channel Seven and Channel Nine—they were right in there with their cameras and showing yep. us every night. And I'm like, oh, these people are insane. Like, you wouldn't normally do this. You, th- th- these people do exist. We know there's, you know, crazy people out there, right? If you've stood on a bloody polling booth on election day, you know that for sure. You've met them, yep. but you don't give them a frigging platform on nightly news at six o'clock every night, and they were doing it every night because it's ratings. It looks great because people say yep. batshit crazy things, and I was like, here we yep. go again. I mean, this is it's a it's a different issue. It's not racism. Well, I'm sure they were racist, but they weren't, they were making an argument against lockdowns and our freedom, all kind of crap, but it's still, they were giving these people a platform and that's the problem because it it eventually gets out of hand.
1: Yeah. And we like, I'm sure anyone listening to this who's tried to organize some sort of a action in Mm. Sydney or Melbourne, imagine trying to get a camera, just any camera to that and get, get that on the, on the TV that night. It's impossible.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right. Um before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to talk about? What we-
1: yeah, I think um I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about our um the campaign that we'll be launching um very soon, hopefully in a month or so, but obviously community consultation comes first. So right now is a really interesting time for migration. Um on one hand, you've got um you've got this system in Australia that is like, if we really pull it right back, it's built on, it's built on this idea that people of colour um, are your workers in the colony and you bring them over to where you are and you get them to work for you for low or free wages and that builds the wealth of, of the colony, that builds the commonwealth. That is the idea behind um, migration in this like colonial, post-colonial world. Um, that is what the Span- the Spanish, the Portuguese, the English, um, the French all did, and that is why those, these countries and empires are so well off. Um, and Australia is, is part of that now in this modern age. Australia and America and Canada and New Zealand are now um, perpetuating that as well. And it's interesting because the people who come to now these countries are coming again from the former colonies they're coming from places that were ravaged by um uh by these by the colonizers uh who had their wealth stolen um and are now trying in the 21st century uh for the individually or for their own families to build their own wealth and we now have to go elsewhere to do that because it is in, it is so difficult to do in in your country of origin um, and then you have migration as a result. And um, that migration system in Australia is built on um, so-called uh, skills shortages. So that prioritises middle-class, upper-class people. You end up with a bit of a brain drain um, in those countries of origin. And it also brings across people who um, are quite working class um, in sort of labouring jobs, um, such as farm work, and um, uh, again, in a way that devalues that work. It devalues the skill, the, the great difficulty involved in that work. Um, and that's seen in the way that those workers compared to your more middle-class, like doctors and scientists who are brought over, but those workers have their passports stolen, or sorry, held by their um, employer and they're forced to live in sort of substandard housing. And so we've got this system where you're either reliant on your employer or your partner, if you're lucky enough to be in a sort of international relationship in that way, um, or on the skills that you're able, like your own class um, privilege in your home country. Um, and then once you get here, that's not that's not the end of it. You're forced into this temporary visa system. The one that uh, my parents came under sort of a, the, the Keating government's system, and that was much simpler, much fairer. Um, I believe, though we need, to, we need to double check, but I believe the Labor Party is um, now heading back towards that sort of Keating-esque, um, and the union movement is heading back towards that um, Keating-esque position. But we, and it's a it's a good one to take, but we also need to go further. Um, we need to rethink what migration means uh, when we are here on stolen land as well. We can't just um, keep bringing people over in a in a way that doesn't acknowledge um what what that is about as well um but but like fundamentally we need a migration system that is about self-determination it's about um dignity it's about uh people being able to um have their needs met and live live that life live that life where you've got your car your backyard house of your own stable job you can raise your children if that's what you choose to do. But it's just that it's that that level of, of, of simplicity, of just a such a simple life that so that so many people want. And when you're a citizen, you're middle class, even lower, lower middle class, that is almost guaranteed. Or you at least feel like it's within reach. But when you are a new migrant, you have to work 20 times harder to get that. Um, and then there's that whole narrative about um, about uh, just put your head down and work hard, just work hard, assimilate, um, make it happen. Uh, and we, we don't think that that should be the case either. We shouldn't have to, people shouldn't have to assimilate um, and, and let everything go in order to be part of this community when we can build a really rich, vibrant, diverse country um, that really acknowledges people's different skills and acknowledges people's different ways of being. Um, and so what we want to see is we want to see an end to the temporary migration system um, and one that is geared far more towards permanent migration. We want to see um, access to services for people who are migrants, so being able to access Medicare, for example. And I mean, particularly um, now that we've had a global pandemic, can you imagine people um, not being able to access Medicare? It's just it's just absurd. Um, and then of course uh being able to do so um with with a with a level of dignity as well so being able to come here work build a life have a sense of security and not have to keep flying back and forth or paying finding money for all these visa fees and lawyers and all sorts of things um but being able to just build a life not having to do a citizenship test one that is again geared towards people from um england or from the us um, not one that is is—it's uh, it's set up so deliberately to stop people from non-English speaking backgrounds from, um, from gaining citizenship. So that's a campaign that we want to run. We know it's going to be a big one, mm. um, but this is the moment for it because um, for the first time since the white Australia policy was abolished, uh, there are no or very few new migrants coming here. Um, unfortunately, our economic system is built, Australia's current economy and wealth is built on the backs of uh, migrants on temporary visas. Um, and I'm actually not sure what is going to happen. I um, mean, we're already seeing on farms that they can't find people to pick the fruit for those measly wages. They're talking about getting robots to do it. Um, rental, uh, the rental markers shifted in places like Sydney, uh, where there are far fewer, far less international students and new migrants. Um, uh, taking up tenancies, um, and what else, what else is next? What, what else is going to happen? Uh, because Australia's population is reliant on migration. Um, and if we're not growing the population, well, what that's, what's that going to mean for the economy. So I think there's a lot of questions for us to think about as we begin to open the borders. Um, and we definitely need those borders to open for many reasons. Um, and in doing so, we have a real opportunity to reshape what migration looks like. We don't have to go back to the system that we had. We can have a better system that works for everyone, a system that works for all of us. Um, uh, and so, yeah, that's that's what we're that's what we're gearing up for.
0: Um, it, it, it's a big task, but uh, an important task. And I, you are right. I mean, the sort of what we've seen Oops. is because of COVID we've closed all our borders down, migration has come to a, not a halt, but it's certainly, mm. it's, you know. It's, it's, a, tr- it's a trickle. <laughs> That's exactly what I was about to say. It's a trickle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for God's sake, even Australian citizens can't get back in the country because it's no. Scott, Scott Morrison. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're right. This is the moment. This is a, a perfect opportunity. Um, and also to have some, just some really good policy discussion to start with, mm. to come up with some of the solutions that actually would make it a lot better for everyone and the experience of coming to a new country and settling as a son of first yeah, as a first generation Australian um um you know it wasn't easy for my parents either so that was the 50s things haven't changed too much by the sounds of it
1: no they really haven't
0: um how if you're a if you're a, a young person I, I shouldn't say young is it strictly young i don't know you tell no. me yes if you're a person of color no, living in australia and you want to get involved in democracy in color how do you go about it
1: so there are a few different things that you can do um I'm going to say very specifically for the audience of this podcast: if you are involved with your union, which I certainly hope you are, in some way or another, um, or if you're involved in the Labor Party, um, I would really love it if you could go back to your leadership, uh, to your branch, and have this hard, like, have this conversation about why um, Labor's policy position on migration is actually not that bad. But the rhetoric around it is horrendous and is actually like pre-white Australia um, protectionism. You know, the, the Labour Party back in the 50s was pro-white Australia policy, and that is the same, uh that is the same rhetoric that's being used now in 2021. Um and we don't need to win on this issue by appealing to nationalism and racism. We can win on this issue in other ways. Um, so I think that is one really key thing that we need to talk about. Um, the other thing is, uh, if you're a white person, the best thing that you can do is actually fund our movement. So um, as as we've been saying, uh, we believe that people with lived experience are the best ones to make the decisions and lead the work that needs to be done. Um, but to do that, we need to resource it. And like I was saying before, we've just been able to hire an organising director, and so she's been able to lead on so much of this work. We know that we could do so much more um, if we had infrastructure like that. We're only a staff of three at the moment, um, and if we could be a staff of five or six, just imagine what we could do for racial justice in this country. Um, So you can join our Solidarity Program. Simply go to our website and look for Solidarity Program, uh, $30 a month. Uh, and you get access to resources, regular trainings, um, and be part of a Facebook group where you can share. And it's like a safe space for, for white people to talk to each other about um, questions that you think might be silly or might be offensive, like that's a place to talk to each other and, and have those discussions. Um, the other thing you can do is keep an eye out for uh, when we have sort of call-outs for bigger mobilisations are inviting people along to rallies and things like that. That's sort of open to everyone um and then if you're a person of color or first nations person um get involved in the campaigns that we're running we've got a migration campaign that i was just talking about and then we've got some other sort of cool stuff that we do like our action team are putting together zines and um, kind of getting involved in some arts and culture stuff as well so there's plenty to do uh and you can sign up via our website um which we'll put you onto our mailing list.
0: Excellent. What's the, um, well, drop the um, the uh, email, sorry, email, the uh, website into the bio for today's episode, but just uh, ver- verbally, what's the, what's, the um, what's
1: your web address? Yeah, go to Um and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter.
0: Nice one. Uh, Neha, it was wonderful to have you on the show. You're a talent uh, we wish you the best of luck um, with the uh, the um, campaigns that you guys are going to embark on in 2021, um, and we hope to have you back on soon.
1: Thank you. It's a real pleasure being here.